My name is Veronica Rooney. And my name's Brooklyn Shively. And this is Resilience, a podcast sponsored by the College of Arts and Sciences and a proud partner of the 2021 semester program. Resilience is a word used to describe communities bouncing back from tragedy, nations recovering from crises, the land we live on after being ravaged by natural disasters and the effects of climate change. It's how we describe those who overcome adversity and thrive. On this podcast, we will interview professors in the College of Arts and Sciences about how their work intertwines with resilience, exploring how populations rethink systems to combat climate change, fight racial oppression through youth organizing, or adapt to a booming mediascape. We have a tremendous capacity to bounce back, or do we? Join us as we explore this year's semester topic, resilience. Today, we will be speaking with Betsy Grabe, former associate dean of the media school and a principal investigator at the IU Observatory on Social Media. Dr. Grabe's research focuses on media images and how they affect our conception of the world we live in. She has written extensively on politics in the media and how media images affect our understanding of elections and of democracy itself. We wanted to talk to Dr. Grabe to get a better understanding of how the modern mediascape affects our trust in our government and other institutions. Are we learning to cope with a new age of sensationalized media and politics? Or will we not be able to rise to the challenge? We discuss all of this and more with the incomparable Dr. Betsy Grabe. We're here with Professor Grabe. Professor Grabe, how are you doing today? I'm doing just fine. Thank you for um, inviting me for this. Yeah, yeah thank so you for happy. joining us for this interview. Um, for context, I um, was lucky enough to have Professor Grabe uh, as my professor for my first class in the media school here at IU. Um, and she was absolutely wonderful, um, incredibly engaging. I'm really excited for this interview and to hear a little bit more about what you study outside of the realm of your teaching and outside of the realm of undergraduate courses. So yeah, um, we're just gonna dive right in. Um, so we've, you know, done some reading about you know what you study, and could you just briefly summarize your scholarship on people's perception of news media depending on how it is packaged for the public? Yeah, I could do that um, for sure. Um, but let me just start this conversation by saying that I have collaborated with many faculty and graduate student colleagues. Uh, most of the work I've done over the years cannot be conducted in a, in a kind of a solo pursuit. Um, you know, the design of the studies, their execution are, are just inherently collaborative. Um, and so over the years, I've thought of these collaborations as kind of the academic version um, of playing in a band together. <laughs> um, you know, there's a certain magic that happens when minds meet on ideas and research designs and, and problem solving. So with that in mind, I, of course, I can uh, give you a bit of a summary on this um, scholarship uh, of uh, 
how, um, yeah, packaging of messages can affect people's perceptions of news. Um, so most of that work that I've done departs from the idea that informed citizenship is a cornerstone of, of democracy. Uh, and so that uh, made me interested in identifying ways to make information uh, acquisition more accessible uh, beyond a small elite of, of people who uh, are already informed. Um, and so there are two ways to think about the subtle differences in message packaging that can have very large uh, consequences for how these messages are being received by media users. One is the form, so literally how it's packaged, uh, with bells and whistles, slow motion music, flashing edit, flashy editing, uh, or is it packaged in a pretty standard or dry, uh, unobtrusive uh, way? Right. So um, the other way to think about packaging and its um, ramifications uh, relates to message content, the way the content is being framed by the reporter, say the level of emotionality that's included in the message, the level of negativity, um, even variations on the physical appearance of the same anchor can affect the attention, the credibility of the message, uh, how people comprehend the, the, the information um, and their memory for, for this information. Um, yeah, so um, let me give a few examples. Um, in terms of the form, uh, of, of, of packaging. Uh, we've done many studies and what we found is that when the content is kind of boring, uh, adding a bit of the bells and whistles of packaging uh, can make news um, more memorable. At the same time, when you add these bells and whistles, uh, you know, to already compelling content, it creates a type of a cognitive uh, overload uh, that works against comprehension um, and, and memory. And then in terms of content, we've done a bunch of studies uh, on knowledge gaps between different demographic groups, in particular, um, people with lower and higher levels of education and also between men and women. Um, and in terms of education, we have found that if stories include emotional personalization, in other words, if stories, news stories include not only the cold hard facts, uh, but also feature ordinary citizens who give their accounts of um, the social issue, um, then knowledge acquisition get gaps close considerably. So uh, in short, putting a human face on social issues uh, really helps people with lower levels of education to gain information and become informed citizens. And then in terms of gender, uh, yeah, there are quite a few uh, interesting uh, studies. Uh, some of the results were quite surprising to us. Um, you know, around the world, women have um, been responding in surveys um, saying that they do not like the way news is presented. They find it too negative. They find it depressing, uh, too scary. And well, uh, historically, uh, news was created by men, for men, 
perhaps uh, because men have a stronger negativity bias than women. Um, and perhaps that's why news um, have always been, by definition, negative. Uh, think about it, hundreds of uh, aeroplanes take off, thousands, millions, perhaps, uh, across the world every day. But we only hear reports of those um, that do not complete their, their flight or uh, have some em emergency, right? Um, and so evolutionary psychologists explain this phenomenon this phenomenon of negativity bias uh, from the perspective of um, parental investment. And this might sound wow. This is way off the point uh, when we think about news, but um, it's actually quite relevant here. Um, the survival rates of Homo sapiens offspring uh, is more closely tied to mothers than fathers. And um, the parental investment roles diverge also in, in considerable ways. Mothers traditionally uh, provide the inner circle of care. Fathers cover the outer periphery, periphery of safety and sustenance. Um, and so women have an avoidance response to negatively compelling uh, stimuli, including news. Uh, and men have more curiosity when facing that same uh, stimulus. Um, and so this might literally, uh, in a way, explain uh, why news uh, designed by men for men have traditionally had this highly negative bend uh, and why women do not like to consume news. Uh, and so long story, but we wondered if news would be framed a little more positively right, um, if that would affect women's interest in consuming news. So pre we produced a number of news stories, um, all uh, negative by nature. So for example, a story about US troops in Afghanistan, uh, natural disasters, uh, a wave of um, teenage obesity. Those are some of the stories. And then we also added some positivity to one version of these storage stories. For example, in the Afghanistan story, we uh, included reference to a very special relationship that some soldiers um, developed with um, Afghan children. Um, in the disaster stories, we added reference to how communities pulled together to help each other uh, overcome the hardships of, of disasters. Um, and this is often referred to as resolution journalism, right? It goes beyond reporting the negatively compelling events. It takes a step beyond it to report on the human condition behind the story, below it, underneath it. Uh, and what we found in this series of experiments is that women were more likely uh, to self-report higher interest in the positively framed stories. They also remembered and comprehended the factual information better uh, in those versions of the stories than the negatively framed ones. Uh, and of course, the opposite was true for men. Uh, so there's clearly a, a highly uh, robust uh, gender uh, difference in, in, in how, um, yeah, 
people respond um, to, to news. We also tested, this is, um, yeah, a, 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 it was really just a fun experiment that we didn't expect to find anything, but we, we tested the impact of um, a female anchor's sex, sexualization. Uh, we noticed that um, female anchors um, on cable news um, became quite sexualized, and, you know, with uh, low-cut dresses, a lot of makeup, and that was a, a, a major change, I would say, over the past 20 years. Women anchors tend to have appeared quite androgynous and suddenly uh, they became quite sexualized. So we wanted to see the impact of just the messenger, the anchor, uh, on how people would uh, comprehend uh, news information. So we took the very same anchor and we slightly altered her appearance based on three uh, very subtle cues that has been associated in the evolutionary psychology literature with a woman's um, sexual attractiveness. And these are hip to waist ratio, uh, adding a bit of red lip color um, and decoration through jewelry. So the very same anchor reading the same stories in two conditions. One condition, we pulled in our jacket to accentuate her waist. We added a little bit of red lipstick and we gave her a bit of jewelry. And the other condition, um, a non-figure hugging jacket, no makeup, no jewelry. And the results were uh, startling. Overall, that female anchors fitness uh, for reporting more masculine topics like war, politics, uh, was significantly diminished when she was sexualized. Um, and most startling, perhaps, perhaps is that men had a very tough time remembering the content of what the sexualized uh, version of the anchor reported, especially compared wow. to. So that gives you a, a long story about some of the work um, in terms of packaging of information uh, that I've done over the years. Thank you so much. Um, that kind of brings in another question that we had, which is, you know, as time has progressed, you started in journalism in the 1980s um, when the world of news was considerably smaller than it is today, just by virtue of, you know, the invention of social media, Apple products, the internet, um, and the idea that the way news is packaged can have a significant effect on the viewer's comprehension is vital in terms of getting views. How has your scholarship changed as we've moved into the digital age and we've just seen the mediascape explode with more and more information, some of which is, you know, what we know today as like fake news? Yeah. Excellent question. You know, as I reflect, on my work, um, it feels like the first chunk of my academic career was spent on, yes, understanding how different groups of citizens process the news and how the media can improve on their kind of self-appointed duty to uh, promote informed citizenship. And then over the past five years or so, um, I think my focus has shifted away from that uh, to understanding uh, the process whereby media produce 
disinformed uh, citizenship. Uh, so I have um, also, I noticed, become more open to the options of regulating the so called marketplace of ideas, um, you know, where media are quite central. This is something that I would have opposed um, with every fiber of my being <laughs> um, 10 years ago, right? So I do feel an enormous shift in, in, in my uh, intellectual um, academic pursuits and in the way that I teach uh, media classes as well. Um, and so my earlier insistence on an unregulated public sphere is perhaps because I was born and raised in South Africa, uh, where I experienced government uh, regulation. Well, uh, in the form of very serious censorship during the height of apartheid. And that instilled in me a fierce belief in the freedom of expression uh, and also laws to protect against uh, government intervention in, in media systems. Um, when I worked as a documentary news producer uh, at the South African Broadcasting Corporation in the 1980s, uh, there was a state of emergency with um, severe press restrictions. And newspapers and TV and radio were all, yeah, severely censored uh, by the apartheid government. And so working under those conditions um, is really what made me want to become an American. Uh, to be honest, actually, I had very little interest um, at first um, visiting the United States, but um, after cultural sanctions kicked in against South Africa, and I struggled to get access to articles for my master's thesis, I was working full-time and studying part-time, I uh, took unpaid leave to come to the United States on a small scholarship. And after seeing press freedom work for the first time uh, in full in the United States, I could not go back uh, to working as a journalist under the conditions of censorship. So I returned to South Africa after a few months in the US and then left South Africa again within four months to come back to the United States for graduate work. So it is with astonishment that I now recognize that my position on regulation has moved um, over the past few years. And yes, that shift um, I sense in my thinking is largely due to social media. Uh, at first, we saw the social web as a democratizing platform uh, where citizens could freely participate in debate, share information. Uh, we gave social media credit for enabling citizens to mobilize for collective action. I'm thinking back at the uh, uprisings around 2010, the Me Too movement, the Black Lives Matter movements, um, where social media really helped to coordinate and share experiences. Um, and, and that really fueled uh, these movements. Um, and so, yeah, these are valid 
but perhaps incomplete and somewhat utopian views of, of social media. Uh, with it also came very serious threats to the very idea of a marketplace of ideas. It, it opened the, the doors to uh, unfiltered uh, information flow, which, you know, sounds uh, great until that reality started to produce really bad outcomes um, through algorithms, uh, social media act as a kind of a news aggregator without evaluating the, the credibility of, of the sources of information. We are exposed to news that these algorithms have chosen for us based on our behavior on social media. So um, the information hose, and you might, it might be helpful to think of social media as a, a massive garden hose, uh, streaming information instead of water. Um, through that hose, we encounter on social media uh, information that aligns with our own views. Without a filter uh, on the reputation of uh, the original source of that information. Um, and these algorithms put us into small echo chambers of like-minded people where we do not encounter opposition to our opinions. Um, and we get, where we get constant confirmation of what we already believe. It really would require an extraordinary effort um, to break out of social media echo chambers, um, to do fact checking. And the research is showing us that most people do not do that. Um, in addition, news stories flow to us via our friends, and people we know, and along with that uh, comes some appearance of an endorsement uh, of the story that gets uh, shared, liked, or retweeted. Um, and um, we, those recommendations, we, we, through those recommendations, we accept the messages we, we get through friends uh, more easily. Um, and of course, platforms highlight for us the popularity of certain pieces of information um, through likes and, and, and so forth. And, um, at the same time, bots and other coordinated accounts are active on social media to inflate the diffusion and the popularity of stories, moving them right up in, in attention um, levels. So yeah, uh, these, these basic observations that I've made just now um, about the integrity of information flow through social media made me arrive at a point of thinking that the marketplace of ideas is not working as it's been conceived of. It's definitely not. Um, it's not the marketplace of ideas that John Stuart Mill uh, had in mind um, uh, in his theory on liberty uh, or any, any musings about that thereafter. And one can say, well, uh, yeah, was it, a, was it any better before social media? Uh, did we ever have uh, a healthy marketplace of ideas? 
And, you know, I, there are a few days that I don't think about this. <laughs> um, in short, my answer, I think, um, would just n nudge us to look back at um, uh, long-term political polarization trends uh, in the United States. Thank you to Dr. Grabe for discussing her work with us today. The music for the intro and outro is Wrote This Letter Instrumental by Justin Anthony Adams and Sebastian Barnaby Robertson, provided by Universal Production Music under a non-commercial license. Thank you so much for listening. This has been Resilience, a podcast by Themester.